0: Welcome back to hermeneutics. We have finished our look at bad hermeneutics. We've been spending several weeks trying to build a foundation so we can understand right hermeneutics, and this morning we're going to talk about the principles for right hermeneutics. And like I said, we've been trying to build a foundation over the last few weeks, and I want to start this morning just by by kind of looking at that foundation, and then we'll get into these principles. And I want to begin by returning back to a couple categories that we talked about in week one. The very first week of class, we talked about general versus special hermeneutics. And we applied these two terms to interpreting any form of written communication. General hermeneutics talked about interpreting any text that you pick up, and special hermeneutics talked about how you interpret the Bible specifically because the Bible is inspired. But we can take these two terms and we can apply them directly to just biblical interpretation. How do these two terms apply when we're talking specifically about interpreting Scripture? When we're talking about biblical interpretation, general hermeneutics refers to the principles we apply to every part of Scripture. There are some principles that that remain the same no matter what book you're in, no matter what genre you're reading. From Genesis to Revelation, these principles never change. Whether you're reading the poets, the, the poetry, the prophets, or Paul's epistles, these principles remain the same. Those are general hermeneutics. They are the principles we apply to every passage. Then there are special hermeneutics. And again, when you're talking about biblical interpretation, special hermeneutics refers to principles that are applied to specific types of, of literature or specific genres. There are some things that we can do in narratives that we can't do in poetry. There are some things that we can do in didactic portions of text, portions that teach, that we wouldn't do in a narrative. These are principles that apply to those specific types of literature. But we do not ever use special hermeneutics to contradict general. So I'm never going to take a a specific type of, or specific principle for special hermeneutics and use it to contradict one of our principles of general hermeneutics. Have I lost anybody? Is anyone everybody with me? Okay. Today we're going to be focusing on the principles of general hermeneutics. The principles that apply to every passage of scripture no matter which passage you're looking at. When we study the Bible, what principles do we apply to every passage? Every verse. And these principles are utilized or used with scripture primarily because of the nature of Scripture. What makes Scripture different than every other book you read? That's a softball question. It's inspired. We've been looking at this theological foundation of hermeneutics over the last few weeks, and I want to make sure we're all on the same page here. So I want to just show you this in one slide. What's the theological foundation for interpreting scripture? The first one is, we talked about this in week one, that scripture is a revelation of God. When you read scripture, you are receiving divine revelation. It reveals, it unveils his nature, his will, his works. When the prophet went to God, they received direct revelation from God, and they were supernaturally empowered to understand that revelation and understand it perfectly. And then God supernaturally empowered the prophet to go and to communicate that revelation to another person. Whether he communicated that verbally in his preaching, or he communicated that in writing. What the prophet received was a divine revelation. And what the prophet delivered to his audience in his preaching they received divine revelation. God protected his speech to make sure that he delivered the revelation exactly as, he, as God wanted it. And then, when the prophet later sat down and he wrote out that revelation, what he wrote was protected by God and is a divine revelation. This is divine revelation. And we know that we can trust the contents of this book because it is inspired. Inspiration talks about how God protected his revelation in written form. Inspired means it's God-breathed. God spoke through human authors using a real language. It's not God speaking through a man as though the man were a puppet, and the man is just kind of passive. These authors, their entire life was shaped by God to equip them and to prepare them to write Scripture. And then when they sat down to write, God used their words, their style, their vocabulary, their logic, their reasoning to pin his words. And so when we ask who wrote the book of Romans, Paul or God, the answer is yes. They are the words of both. But ultimately, it is God who is the author of the text because the text is inspired And if the text comes from God, then the text must take on God's nature. If the text comes from God and God is perfectly true, then can the text have lies and errors in it? No. We call that the doctrine of? You guys have been paying attention. Good. Inerrancy. They are inerrant. Simply said, inerrancy says that whatever Scripture says is true is true. What Scripture says is false is false. It doesn't get its facts wrong. And then, after we get that idea, the inerrancy, we also talked about that Scripture is not only the work of God, but it is the work of God through human authors. And those human authors wrote in known human languages. You know, God could have written the text on his own, and he could have put the text in a language that you and I don't understand. He could have put it in some, you know, if there was, a heavenly language that we would never get but he chose to write it through human authors. And those human authors understood what they were writing, and that language was intended to communicate so that you can understand, and the text can be understood. Anybody remember the fancy name for the text being clear enough to be understood? Perspicuity. That's the $10 word. Perspicuity. What God intended to communicate to you is not hidden from you. It's not put behind obscure language that cannot be understood. It's not hidden behind an unknown language. And you can take the principles of interpretation and you can apply them and you can come to an understanding of divine revelation given through the text of Scripture. When we come to the Scriptures, this is the theological foundation that we come to. This is what we bring to the text. And this is what we bring only to the text of Scripture. There is no other text that we bring these presuppositions to. And if you come to the Bible and you forget or put aside these foundational truths, you actually distort the meaning of the text. You'll have the wrong meaning. These are unique to Scripture alone. This theological foundation forms the basis of our hermeneutic, of how we interpret the text. All right. So what are the principles of interpreting Scripture? What principles should we utilize to determine the meaning of the text? I have to warn you, um, you're not going to have a big aha moment this morning. Because we've been doing, going through this for six weeks, and all but two of these I have mentioned more than once. And some of these are just really obvious. When you accept the theological foundation, some of these are just really obvious. But we're going to lay it out. There's seven of them. I'm not going to get through all seven of them today. We might get through five, maybe six at the most. But we'll look at it. The first principle for right hermeneutics. We submit to the authority of the text. That is to say, when we come to the text of Scripture we have an attitude of submission. We have that attitude because scriptures come from God. The Bible says they are the oracles of God. And if they come from God, then we are to submit to whatever they teach. And if the scriptures give us a command, then we come with an attitude of, I'm going to obey. And if the scriptures say we need to change our thinking on something, we try to change our thinking on it. There's no other text that you come to with an attitude of unequivocal submission. When I read a human author, I don't have an attitude of unequivocal submission. I go to the human author, and what's my attitude? More of skepticism. When a human author outside of Scripture writes commands for his readers to follow, I come to it with an attitude of suspicion. I approach the text and ask questions, well, does the author have the authority to make this demand? Are his commands logical? Are his commands or his Assertions based on sound evidence and reasoning? What would the results of following his commands be? Can I find evidence that anything this author says is true? And by asking those questions, what am I essentially doing? I am placing myself as the authority on the text. I determine how much that text is going to impact me. I determine what I am going to obey and not obey. I determine how much... Influence the author is going to have on my life. I can't control his meaning. I can't change what he intended to write But I do have the right and I have an obligation To discern whether obedience to his text is appropriate Some human authors recommend and strongly suggest or command that you do what is sinful And you have a responsibility to say no Those authors are not inspired. What they write comes from their own sinful heart. And their motives for writing are often sinful. And because they're sinful, their logic oftentimes is skewed and flawed. And even when they're discussing scientific conclusions, it's flawed. And so to the extent that the author fails to communicate the truth, I should refuse to submit to his or her text. Is that true of Scripture? Well, not if we hold to the theological truths that we just discussed. If scriptures are inspired then the human authors wrote under the leadership and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, their words are his words, their logic and reasoning are ultimately guided and controlled by a perfect and omniscient God. And therefore, I can't dismiss the commands and encouragements of scripture as being illogical or poorly reasoned. I can't say that God got his facts wrong or he doesn't know the whole story I have to submit to whatever he says. Well, then I read other works and other human authors. Have you ever done this? You read the book, and it's just really poorly written. And you're like, this guy can't even spell. I'm not going to take life advice from him. Or the author just fails to communicate his ideas, and you can't even understand what the text says. It lacks clarity and so it loses all of its authority. But again, we can't dismiss Scripture and ignore Scripture because of clarity. We can't turn back and say, Scriptures are unclear, therefore I don't have to obey it. Because Scriptures are clear. God is the ultimate author of Scripture. Not only is he the author of Scripture, but he is the author of language itself. He is the one that gave man the ability to speak. He's the one who gave you the ability to understand language. Therefore, he is the preeminent communicator. He's the master of words. He's the master of interpretation. When I speak, like I'm doing now, there are other people who can say what I'm trying to say. They can say it a lot better than I do. When I write, there are other people who can say it better than I do, which is why I use so many quotations. My words can be improved. God's words can't. His words are perfect. Scriptures come from God and they reflect his perfect nature and therefore they carry absolute authority that I must submit to. And right interpretation of the text of Scripture begins with an attitude of submission. We come to the text of Scripture with the same awe and reverence that we would have if Jesus walked into the door and said, sit down, I'm going to start teaching. We wouldn't sit there and listen to Jesus and say, now, is he getting this right? Is what he's saying actually true? We've looked at bad hermeneutics over the last several, several weeks. Some of them demand that the text meet their evidence. They demand that the text prove its assertions. And they say things like, well, if the Bible does not provide evidence that I, that I find compelling, then I'm not going to believe it. Some make science or psychology the authority over the text. And say, well, if the science or psychology doesn't affirm what the Bible says, then we're going to change the meaning of the Bible. Others make the reader the authority of the text. The, the text means whatever you think it means. What does this text mean to you? That, that is the authority. And all of them ignore the meaning of the text so they can impose their own meaning so they can make themselves the authority over the text. That is not submission. That's rebellion. That makes the interpreter the ultimate authority. We come to the text with Submission. Second principle, we are dependent upon God. That is, we come to the text recognizing that a right interpretation requires God to illuminate our minds and help us to understand the text correctly. And this principle is really founded on two realities. The first reality is founded on, the first is the nature of man. Our minds have been ravaged by sin. What theologians call the noetic effects of the fall how the fall, how sin has affected your ability to think. Al Mohler actually put together a list of 14 different ways your thinking has been affected by sin. And I'm not going to go through all 14 this morning. But I do want to give you a couple of them that specifically apply to how we interpret the text of Scripture so you can see that you do need divine help in interpreting. The first way that sin affects your mind is ignorance. Ignorance talks about our ability to retain and to obtain truth. There are many things that we simply don't understand because we just don't know. Because we have a diminished ability to learn. The gap that we talked about between you and the author, remember? Time, culture, geography, and language. Those are problems of ignorance. When I put the Hebrew text up there and asked who could read it, your problem was ignorance. You didn't know. You don't know the language, you don't know about the time, you don't know the geography, you don't know the culture, and therefore, because of that, you cannot come to a right understanding of the text. And then you say, Well, I can study, that's true, but sometimes you don't know what you don't know. And you're missing pieces, and you don't even realize that you're ignorant of your own ignorance. And so am I. You need a helper that can overcome your ignorance. When we come to the text, we have to recognize that we are ignorant and we need an omniscient helper to help us understand what we're reading. Second way sin affects your thinking. Faulty perspectives. Sin warps our perspective of the world. It warps our perspective of Scripture. It warps our understanding of God himself. Sin so affects our perspectives that often we cannot see how much it affects our perspective. Our perspective is so skewed we don't even realize we're wrong. I'll give you an example. Uh, anybody know any modern day heretics? You don't have to name them. But if, if you know who I'm talking about, do they come out and tell you, hey, I'm a heretic? Do you think they believe themselves to be heretics? No. You know what they'll say? They'll point to scripture and say, I'm right. All of you guys are wrong. I've got this right. You've got it wrong. And the church has had it wrong for 2,000 years. That's a warped perspective. Faulty perspectives dramatically affect how you interpret the text. And you need to be aware of that. Another one. Drawing the wrong conclusion. Okay, you're you're, you're facing some kind of problem, whatever the problem is. Maybe you don't know exactly what the problem is. And so you go around and you're trying to find a way to resolve the problem. So what you do is you start collecting evidence and little pieces of information so you can try to put them all together and figure out what the problem is and how to solve it. And so you grab evidence from over here, and over here, and over here, and you get it all together, and then you start, you know, playing connect the dots. And you hope that once you draw all the lines and connect all the dots, you can put, t- put it all together and know what you're supposed to do about your problem. And we think that by doing that, we'll come to the right conclusions. How many of you have done that, and you've come to the wrong conclusion? Yeah, everybody. Why do we come to the wrong conclusion? because sometimes we gather evidence that we think is relevant but it's not sometimes we gather the right evidence and then we connect it to another piece of evidence that it shouldn't be connected to and we make faulty connections between them and because we incorporated the wrong evidence and we linked it to other piece of evidence incorrectly we come to a completely wrong conclusion how many of you have seen that done in scripture I'm going to take this verse, and I'm going to connect it over here to this verse. There's no connection between them, but I'm going to connect them anyway, and I'm going to draw this weird conclusion. I just saw a guy on social media talking about the sinfulness of beards. It's pride if you have facial hair. I'm sure he had a text for it somewhere. Faulty conclusion. Last one. There's many more from Al Mohler, but this is the last one I'm going to show you. Miscommunication the meaning of the language getting lost in translation. Have you ever been in a conversation, you're talking to someone, and you think you're saying it clearly, but you just miss, and you sit there and argue in circles for like 20 minutes until you realize you just had a problem with communication and you just weren't understanding? That goes all the way back to the Tower of Babel when God confused the languages. He confused the languages in giving everyone a different language, And so you had to translate between them. And if you want to see this in biblical interpretation, just look at all the various translations of the Bible. The Message, the New World Translation, the NIV, the KJV, the NKJV, the NASB, the ESV, the LSB, the NLT, and we can keep going. And some of those, there's a wide gulf between what they say. And even uh, over the last couple weeks, we looked at Proverbs 22.6 train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart. That misunderstanding is based on a faulty translation. Bad communication. These are just a few of the ways that sin affects our minds and our ability to think. And it will affect the way you interpret the text. And you can't get away from it. You can't get away from the fact that sin is going to affect how you think and it's going to affect how you interpret the text, which means when you come to the text, you must come to the text with a dependence upon God to offset your handicap, to offset the effects of sin on your mind. To try to interpret the text without depending upon God for help is pride. It proves that you have a warped and faulty perspective on your own ability. And you can see this all the way through Scripture. You see people coming to the text of Scripture And turning to God, asking God for help in merely understanding the text. Psalm 119, verse 18 Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. If I really want to see the glory of the scriptures, if I really want to understand the law, I have to turn to God and have him open my eyes, not my physical eyes, but the eyes of my understanding, so that I am able to understand the text. Uh, Later in Psalm, Psalm 119, verse 73. Your hands made me and established me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. If I want to know the commandments of God, I need to go to him and ask him for understanding. Psalm 119, verse 125. I am your slave. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. The psalmist loves the word of God, but he also recognizes that he needs help in understanding it, that he cannot interpret it rightly on his own. You go into the New Testament, you find the same idea. Ephesians 1, verses 17 and 18. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the full knowledge of him so that you, the eyes of your heart, having been enlightened, will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. If you really want to understand what Christ has done for you, you need God to open up your mind, open up your heart so that you can understand it. You need God to aid you. 1 John 2, verse 20. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. John is writing to people who are dealing with um, proto-Gnostics, the, before Gnosticism really became a thing. And they were being told, you need this special knowledge, you need these special interpreters to help you understand the Bible. You can't understand it, you don't have the special knowledge. And John writes back to them and says, no, you have the Holy Spirit, you can understand Verse 27. And as for you, the anointing whom you received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. Speaking of the false teachers. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as he has taught you, abide in him. You have been given illumination from the Holy Spirit. Yes, sir. Yeah, and some do. He he was saying that this is used as uh, these verses can be used to go by a false teacher to go in the wrong direction. That is true. And I think that's a, that's a good argument for context, right? They'd have to pull that out of its context, out of its historical context, and out of the literary context to do that. But you're exactly right. That is a verse they can use. These verses describe the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever heard someone come and say to you, I was reading the Bible this morning, and God revealed this to me? It's actually really bad language. That's miscommunicating. Revelation is talking about God giving new information. What they really mean there is God illumined my mind. He gave me the ability to understand what was in the text. Isn't that wonderful when you can read a text you've read a hundred times and you can still see new truth in it that you haven't seen before? Dr. Clausen defines the illumination of the Holy Spirit this way. It is the internal witness of the Holy Spirit that expands the believer's understanding and produces a fullness of conviction about the certainty and reliability of the meaning of the biblical text being studied. Well, then some people will say, well, you know, if it's the Holy Spirit that's supposed to open my mind, then maybe I shouldn't spend so much time reading books, and I should spend more time praying. Maybe that's what I need to do. Put the books away and pray some more, and then I can come to a real understanding of the text. B.B. Warfield answered that this way. Sometimes we hear it said that 10 minutes on your knees will give you a truer, deeper, more operative knowledge of God than 10 hours over your books. What is the appropriate response? Then 10 hours over your books on your knees. He said the answer is not to replace study with prayer. The answer is to take your study and bathe it and marinate your study in prayer. And as you study, as you work through the text, that you are constantly crying out to God, asking God to help you understand what you are reading. Any questions so far? We have looked at two principles. We submit to the authority of the text, and we are dependent upon God. I think these are pretty straightforward, but if you have questions. No? Okay. Let's look at the third one. The third principle. We set aside our pre-understanding. We set aside our pre-understandings. That is to say, we let the author be the authority on his own words. It is the author who determines the meaning of the text. This is what we call authorial intent. The author decides what his text means, not our pre-understandings, not our theological preferences, not our preferred interpretations. We take all of those and set them aside. I didn't say we erase them. I said you set them aside. But this is where, of course, as we learned a couple of weeks ago, this is where someone will say, yes, but which author are you referring to? The human or the divine? Remember we talked about census plenier? Well, even that pre-understanding needs to be set aside. Because the Bible makes no such distinction. You won't find that distinction anywhere in Scripture. The words of Paul are described as being the words of God. The words of Moses are described as the words of God. The words of the prophets are described as being the words of God. And so you need to take that pre-understanding and set it aside when you come to the text. There is a singular meaning of the text. It is both the human and the divine author's meaning. They both have one intended meaning of the text. And when I interpret the Bible, my goal is to get back to what the author intended, not what I want it to say. And oftentimes we do this not by intentionally going and trying to read something in the text, but we go to the text with a lens, Some people go to the text and they read the text through their theological system. And so the text just becomes another way to prove their their pet doctrine. They're really big on the sovereignty of God, and now every passage is about the sovereignty of God. Or they read the text through the lens of a confession or a creed. We talked about confessionalism. And the text means whatever the confession says or they read it through the lens of science or psychology. We talked about that. When you come to the text of Scripture, your goal is to know what the original author wanted to communicate, which means you come to the text, you set aside your confession or creed, you examine the text, figure out what the author intended there, and then you compare that to your confession or creed, and to the extent that the confession or creed lines up with what the author said, keep the confession or creed. If the confession or creed contradicts what the text says, you either get rid of that portion of the Confession or Creed or you get rid of the Creed altogether. But the Creed and you are submitted to the text. And you do that by going back and getting what the author intended. The goal of biblical interpretation is not to prove my opinions or my theological preferences. Uh, Zwingli, well-known guy from the Reformation, He said in this and in other matters, we shall not go astray if we seek only the mind of the Spirit. But if we do not, if we apply our energies to find scriptural support for our own opinions, though they are nothing but leaves and grass, we shall constantly be in error. Well, that brings a question. Did the authors of scripture expect their readers to be able to get back to what they meant? When Paul wrote, say, 1 Corinthians did he expect that the 1 Corinthians would be able to read and understand what he was trying to say? 1 Corinthians 14, verse 37. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandments. This word recognize here is epigonosco. First, information obtained in a more exact and detailed way. You might say it this way, let him know that the things I write to you are the Lord's commandments. When you read Paul's writing in First and Second Corinthians, Paul expects that you're going to realize in reading that, that that comes from God. He's certain that his readers are able to obtain his intended meaning. Or take Ephesians 3, verse 4, about which, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. He's writing about the mysteries of Christ. By the way, mystery here is not the Roman Catholic idea or, you know, the old television show Unsolved Mysteries, things that we don't know. Mystery here refers to something that was hidden but is now revealed. And Paul is writing about the mysteries, the things that were hidden about Christ but are now revealed. The deep things of Christ, you might say. And he tells the readers, the Ephesians, and he says, look, when you read my writings— You too can understand my insights into the mysteries of Christ. You can understand what I know about the mysteries of Christ. And you can do that simply by studying the text. You can get the same revelation Paul had about the mysteries of Christ. Only it's not given to you directly from God. It's mediated to you through written language. But the only way you can do that is if you go back and you try to get Paul's intended meaning, not your own pre-understandings. Jerome, the translator of the Bible, he translated the entire Bible into Latin. He said, speaking of his translation, My fixed purpose was not to bend the scriptures to my best wishes, but simply to say what I took to be their meaning. A commentator has no business to impose his own views. His duty is to make plain the meaning of the author whom he proceeds to interpret. For if he contradicts the writer whom he is trying to expound, he will prove to be his opponent rather than his interpreter. Don't make yourself an opponent of the text by imposing your own views. Your goal is to find out what the author meant, and you lay aside everything else. But then there is another objection people make. Well, I can't come to a full knowledge of everything Paul thought on this. The Bible is not going to tell me everything Paul thought on the mysteries of Christ. And he's going to have other thoughts and opinions that aren't, I'm not able to get to In the text, he's going to have thoughts and feelings about this that I'm not going to know. So I can't just go after the authorial intent. I'm going to let Dr. Clausen respond to it. He says, we are not seeking to understand or even identify the unexpressed thoughts present in the writer when he wrote thoughts which undoubtedly were many. It is acknowledged that these mental processes are irrevocable or irrecoverable, excuse me. Rather, we are seeking what the author wanted his original audience to understand by the words and grammar he explicitly chose to express his intent. The ultimate question is, what was the author trying to communicate, not what was the author thinking in all its fullness? I'm here to find out what the author intended to communicate in the text, because the text is inspired. Paul's random thoughts on the mysteries of Christ are not inspired you're not going to be able to read any text and come to a knowledge and understand everything the author thought on that topic. But that doesn't mean you have the right to change what the author wrote or to change what he meant when he wrote. All right, fourth principle for right hermeneutics. This is very similar to the previous one, and so this is going to be short. We seek a single meaning for every text. We seek a single meaning for every text. If we're after the author's intended message, the author's intended meaning, then it necessarily follows that we can't be after two different meanings. The author meant only one thing. When you write an email, you don't intend in one sentence to say five different things. You use specific words for a specific purpose to communicate one specific idea. And any hermeneutic, any method of interpretation that permits or assigns a second, third, or fourth meaning to the text is to be rejected. Because when you add a second meaning to the text, you confuse the process of interpretation and you make meaningful, un, a meaningful understanding of the text impossible. If you can assign meaning, like we saw over the last couple of weeks, to a text that is not in the text, then there's no objective means to determine what the text means you have no way to say what the text means. You can make the text mean anything you want, but if you can make it mean anything you want, are we getting divine revelation or are we getting your opinion? J.C. Ryle, this is another long quote, so I've broken it up. I hold it to be a most dangerous mode of interpreting Scripture to regard everything which its words may be tortured into meaning. As a lawful interpretation of words, I hold undoubtedly that there is a mighty depth in all Scripture. And in this respect, it stands alone. But I also hold that the words of Scripture were intended to have one definite sense, and that our first objective should be to discover that sense and adhere to it rigidly. I believe that as a general rule, the words of Scripture are intended to have, like all other language, one plain definite meaning, and that to say that the words do mean a thing merely because they can be tortured into meaning it is a most dishonorable and dangerous way of handling Scripture. And to that I say amen. If you can just take the words, twist them however you want, and make up your own meaning, you can teach anything you want. The meaning of the text is not found by my opinion. It's found by looking at the words and the grammar of the text. And that doesn't change over time. The text will always mean what the author meant, and it will never mean anything else. As one person said, a text can never mean what it never meant. If it's not attached to the words and the grammar of the text, that is not the meaning. Okay, any questions so far? Yes, sir. Yeah, that's a great, great question. As far as Bible translations, when do we use a paraphrase like the NLT? I'm going to put like the message off to the side. It's not a translation. It's a... Anyway. <laughs> the NLT was actually devised and put together not to play fast and loose with the text, the translators there wrote that text for children and for people who are reading in English, but English is their second language. That's what it was designed for. It was designed for people who struggle with the English language. It was not intended to... So if English is not your first language and you struggle to read and understand the NASB or the LSB, pick up the NLT. It's a good place to start. But if English is your first language, I would stick with the more literal translations. I don't see any reason to go to something like the message. Because, why? The meaning of the text is bound up in the words that the author used. And when you go to the paraphrases, the words on your page don't relate back to the words that the author actually used. And so you, you have, in between you and the text of the actual author, you have that translator standing in between you. Yes. Yes. I think it would be used for daily reading. I think it would be legalism to say, no, you shouldn't read the NIV ever. Yeah, you can use it for daily reading. Just understand, the NIV, like every translation, has problems, right? And if you're going to do a deep study, I wouldn't recommend using the NIV for it. Does that make sense? Yes, ma'am. Right. Yeah, and that's another way that you can check your your translation. is just, you know, pull up some Bible software uh, if you don't have Bible software, org, one of those. Blue Letter Bible, they'll give you multiple translations. And you can see the differences between those translations and that'll help you understand what the text means. And that's actually one of the different ways that you can understand if you got the right interpretation. Yes. The original NIV, to my understanding, was probably the better one. The later editions, like the TNIV or the... In, They have a new NIV that came out that's gender neutral. So, I, I think the original, I, I don't remember off the top of my head, I think in the 1970s is when it was first translated. 74. 74, thank you. The original one was decent, but as you get later, it's kind of like the NASB, the original NASB was really good, the 95 was really good, and the 2020 just not worth it. But the original one, I think it was the better one. So, having a good commentary is helpful. Um, I think MacArthur issued a study Bible in the NIV. And his one condition for doing it was, you let, me tell you, where th- you let me tell the reader where the text is wrong and where they got the translation wrong. So daily reading, yeah, you can read it. Would I recommend that be your primary intake of the word? Probably not. All right. Any other question? Yes. Any other questions? All right. Let's look at number five. We understand the language naturally and in context. We understand the language naturally and in context. Uh, Martin Luther described it this way. We must everywhere stick to the simple, pure, and natural sense of the words that accords with the rules of grammar and the normal use of language as God has created it. In this sense, scriptures are interpreted like every other book. It's interpreted with the assumption that the author intended to convey a message, and he in, he's going to convey that message through written language. And when he writes and uses words, he followed normal and accepted definitions. When he constructed sentences, he used the normal laws of language and grammar, and he chose specific words and specific grammatical instructions to convey the meaning that he wanted to convey. Uh, Milton Terry said the first work of the interpreter is accordingly philological, that is, dealing with the study of language. He, that would be the interpreter, should know the primary signification of each word, the manner of its usage, and the peculiar shades of meaning it may have acquired. I need to know what the words mean if I want to know the meaning of the text. These words that he uses have specific definitions. Definitions that the author knew, and he wrote that word because of that definition. And if you come to a definition that you can't find in a dictionary, your definition is probably wrong. If you assign a meaning to a word that no one else assigns to the word, you've got it wrong. Let me give you an example take the word hat. H A T, hat. What is a hat? A head covering. Now, if I said this statement, I forgot my hat in the car. We all understand what a hat is. Does anyone understand a hat to be anything other than a head covering? No. Okay, good. When you read that text, when you read that, would you spiritualize that statement? Would you take an allegorical hermeneutic to that? You know, like this. I'm going to interpret this text allegorically. A hat is a covering for your head. In Scripture, head coverings are a symbol of a person under someone else's authority. Therefore, he is confessing that he has fallen into sin and abandoned God's authority. (laughs) Welcome to the allegorical hermeneutic. Is that how you would understand the statement, I forgot my hat in the car? And you laugh, but that is exactly how people interpret the Scriptures. That's the kind of silliness that people use. The plain and natural meaning of the phrase I forgot my hat in the car is that I forgot I left my head covering in the car when I intended to bring it inside. That's the plain natural sense of that statement. And in the same way, when you interpret Scripture, you understand the words according to their natural meaning within their context. Understanding language natural also means you understand it according to the normal laws of grammar. Once you know the meaning of the words, You have to understand how those words relate to each other. You have to go back to 7th grade English class and learn grammar all over again. Because if you're like me, you didn't learn it in 7th grade English. How does each word relate to the others? Uh, Milton Terrigan, with the study of words, he must also unite a knowledge of the genius and grammatical structure of the language employed. For thus only can he come into possession of the precise thoughts of an author and judge of their adaptation to impress the first readers. He said that in a very fancy way. Grammar is what tells you how those words relate to each other. Grammar is how he takes individual words and brings them together to express ideas and concepts. And if you don't understand the grammar, if you don't follow the normal laws of grammar, then you don't get the author's meaning. Why? Because the author followed the normal laws of grammar when he wrote the text, Which means you have to follow the same laws. Following the laws of language and grammar, you know what we call this? A literal hermeneutic. This is what it means to interpret the text literally. We take the words to mean what they say according to the normal laws of language and grammar. And this also applies to interpreting figures of speech. Because figures of speech are normal parts of language. They are tools that author u- authors use to help express an idea. And you can only understand and recognize a figure of speech when you understand the words and the grammar. Bernard Rum. Whenever we read a book, an essay, or a poem, we presume the literal sense in the document until the nature of the literature may force us to another level. We start on the normal sense. This is the only conceivable method of beginning or commencing to understand the literature Of all kinds. The non literal is always a secondary meaning which presumes an already existing literal understanding of literature. You can't understand the metaphorical usage of a term or the figurative usage of a term until you understand the normal, natural meaning of the word. When we read in the Bible, all of us like sheep have gone astray, is that saying we're all sheep? No. But if you don't know what a sheep is, that's going to be a meaningless statement. You have to begin with what the words actually mean for the figure of speech to make any sense. And figures of speech, symbolism, are not means of hiding the the message. You'll hear today, well, this is all symbolic, so we can't understand what it means. No, I'm sorry. Authors don't use symbols as a way to hide what they intend to say. They don't use figures of speech to obscure the message. They're used to help you remember the message. When God says, I am your shepherd, that helps you remember it. They help shorten and condense the message because I can take the word sheep and I can add all sorts of meaning to my statement because you understand what a sheep is. Their of speech help get your attention. Illustrations and sermons are really helpful in getting your attention. They're also really helpful in making the message colorful and vivid. Go read Charles Spurgeon and all the metaphors he uses. And look how his text just comes alive. They also help bring definiteness to concepts that are kind of abstract and hard to grasp. By using a figure of speech or a metaphor, you can help people understand that concept. These are all tools the author uses to communicate what he wants to say. Not hide what he wants to say. Think of it this way. All communication boils down to the principle of shareability. That is to say, the author or the speaker is the servant of the one to whom they are communicating with. If I got up this morning and I started teaching in Farsi. Anybody here know Farsi? Wonderful. Nobody knows Farsi. And let's just say I knew Farsi and I was fluent in Farsi and I stood up here and I started my class today speaking nothing but Farsi. Would that help any of you? No. The whole point of me standing up here talking is for me to communicate an idea and a message to you. And if I want you to understand the message, I have to put it in a a language, in a form that you understand. I have to make it to where you can understand what I'm saying. So I'm going to use the most natural sense of the words. I'm going to use the most natural grammar. And I'm going to stick to the grammar as best as I can so that I can clearly communicate the idea and I'm sure that you grasp the idea. Because there's no author in the world who's going to spend the time to write a book so his readers will be confused about what he said. It's pointless. And if the author is going to use words in their natural way, according to the normal laws of language and grammar, in order to interpret the text, you must also do the same. You must read the words in the most natural way, according to the laws and grammar. Dr. Clausen says, uh, speaking of this idea of shareability, the writer or speaker becomes the servant of the one with whom he seeks to communicate, for he is bound to use the language understood by the reader if he wishes to communicate successfully. The authors of Scripture wrote, like in the New Testament, they had two options. Actually, they had more than that, but there was classical Greek that all the scholars knew, and then there was Koine Greek, street Greek, common guy Greek. Which one do you think they picked? Common guy Greek. I'm going to write this for everybody. Authors write using normal laws of language and grammar, and when we study the text, that's how we should interpret the text. All right. I've got two minutes left. There's no point in going to number six. Any questions, comments, concerns? Noetic. It refers to your thinking. How sin affects your thinking. Any other questions? It, it comes from a word that refers to the mind. It's a Greek word that refers to the mind. Actually, that. That's interesting because when I, when I teach this for biblical counseling, we talk about the noetic effects of sin. That's the very first thing I say. This has nothing to do with Noah because it's so everyone hears and they think this is Noah. And nope, it, it sounds the same, but it's not. And that, the first time I heard it, that's what I thought too. So you're not, you're not alone. All right. Well, let me close this in prayer and we'll be done. If you have any questions, you can come and see me afterwards. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Uh, we thank you uh, that you have revealed yourself in a way that we can't understand. We do ask that you would help us as we uh, come to the text, that we would be uh, that we would be equipped, that we would bring right principles to our interpretation, and that we would handle it in a way that is pleasing and honoring to you. We also ask that you help us this morning as we would, in our worship, that you would be glorified in all, that you would help us to apply your word to our lives, and that we would be doers of the word, not just hearers only. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.